0: Let's go to the book of Luke, chapter 16. Parables with power. Not just some story, but a, just an action packed story with truth. Now, parables are earthly stories that have a heavenly meaning. They are meant for a specific purpose. Jesus used all kinds of different forms of teaching. Uh, he used lecture, he, he asked questions, uh, and he told stories. Parables are specific in their purpose, and that is they are intended to create an appetite for truth for a spiritual mind and protect truth in a worldly mind. Those that are worldly just kind of get lost in the story. It kind of irritates them. Jesus left us 40 recorded parables in the gospels. Now we know there are many more because we're told in scripture that if Everything that Jesus said and done could be written down, the world couldn't even contain all the books for that. So there were certainly more. But of these 40 in the gospel record, one third of them deal with money or at least possessions in some way. You'd say, wow, that's significant. It is. I mean, when a third of the stories he told that in some way dealt with money, it was a very big topic. Now, Jesus knew what a big topic it was in the minds of people back then, and really nothing has changed. According to statistics, we spend the majority of our waking time thinking about money to some degree, how to acquire it, how to spend it, how to save it. I don't know if any of us know how to do that, but how to invest it, money and possessions consume a Great portion of our lives. In fact, one study said that if you lived to be 85 and you took all of your waking hours, you would have spent 50 of those years thinking in some way about money or possessions. I mean, it possesses a large amount of our mind. Now, there is a wise way to think about money and then there is a foolish way. And so today, Jesus is going to tell the story. He's going to kind of move a little bit from an evangelistic kind of theme to more of spiritual disciplines and we're going to talk about uh, this is the parable sometimes called the unjust steward I've renamed it of uh, the shrewd financial manager and so let's bow for a word of prayer father we thank you this morning for this great truth how it has uh, witnessed to my heart again and again this week and i do pray oh spirit of god each one today would be lifted and brought closer to your truth lord uh, This whole deal about money can make us or break us, not only in our physical life, but in our spiritual life. And so I pray that today, Lord, you will give each one of us a heart to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's go to Luke chapter 16, if you're not already there. Jesus, the master storyteller, is going to do something quite unique in this story. He's going to do an unexpected thing. He is going to tell a great truth from a very bad man. In fact, in verse number eight, he's identified as the unrighteous or the unjust steward, a conniving, irresponsible manager, and ends up being an embezzler. He tells the story, the people are hanging on his words, and then Jesus drops the mic and he said, "No." let me tell you what this means. And when he did that, they were just shocked by this story. All right, let's go to the explanation of this parable, first of all, and we'll see three things here as we begin. First of all, the dishonesty of the manager or steward, as the Bible calls him. Verse number one, and he said also to his disciples. In fact, let's read verse one together, if you would. Ready? Let's read it out loud. You have it? All right, let's read it together. And he said also unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. Now, notice as we begin that specifically, Jesus is talking to his disciples. A disciple. Well, um, this may be a noun in that it's a specific group, but really the word disciple just means a learner. Sometimes they're not even saved people. They're learning from a Philosophical leader, but uh, typically in scripture, a disciple means one who is a fully committed follower of Christ. So these are, this really is a message to the believer. He's shifting his focus from the Pharisees to his disciples, from justification to sanctification. Notice what it says there was a certain rich man who had a steward. Steward simply means a manager, someone who would come along and handle his affairs. This was a very wealthy man, probably an absentee uh, owner, and he had hired a steward. Now, we know he had some big business here to attend to because uh, of the size of the debts that were owed, and we'll show that in just a minute. And this was only two of the debtors. I'm sure he probably had more. He, uh, the owner, that is, had received some bad news. It began to be commonly reported. Uh, he had uh, it come down his way that uh, some this manager was squandering his property. Now the Bible calls him uh, he, a steward. Actually, the Greek word there is not the typical name for a slave, but rather more one who was a free man but was hired. And uh, the Greek word is oikimon. And here he is. So therefore, he has a little higher social status. He has been given the right to act on this man's uh, uh, for this man's affairs, um, make decisions about lands and crops and assets, liabilities, so forth. And so he's been given this responsibility. But notice what it says he does. He wasted the goods. Now remember, all these things are meaning something. So you can just kind of check it away in your mind a little bit. He wasted the goods. Interesting word there, the word wasting, it is actually the word for tossing something into the air, specifically tossing grain into the air. Back then, they had many ways they would try to separate the, the, uh, the grain from the outside, the chaff as it's called. They would uh, do that in many ways, but one of the ways they would do it is they would just toss it up into the air. It's called winnowing. And so the wind would then uh, take away the lighter stuff, the chaff, and the heavy grain would fall to the ground. So literally what this man was doing was he was just throwing this man's money away. I'm mean, just throwing it away. He was living an extravagant lifestyle, spending on himself, spending on this and that. He was a waster. He was dishonest. Because it was somebody else's money. One thing to uh, waste your own money is another to waste somebody else's. So the dishonesty of the steward. Number two, I want you to notice the discharge. This guy's going to uh, have to leave... What he's doing, the discharge of that steward. Verse 2, and he called him and said unto him, how is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship. I say that again. Give account of thy stewardship. That word stewardship is a word we use in the Christian circles. For thou mayest be no longer steward. And so the owner of the property, in the words of our good president, you're fired. He fires him if you can't manage things, uh, well, you're out of here. And so you can't have this job. And so he lets him go. He says, clean out your desk. And I want you to give me a final accounting of your possessions. The owner probably did an unwise thing in giving the guy a little bit of time to get his act together. Probably the better thing to do is just said, uh, you're out of here. There's the door. See you later. But don't give this guy any time to, to make things worse, which he ended up doing. But Anyway, there's no argument from the employee. He, we don't see, at least in scripture, we see no argument. He knows he's guilty. He, uh, he wasted, so he, uh, he gets fired. The dishonesty, then the discharge. Finally, the discernment of the steward. Now, I use the word discernment really in a negative sense. Actually, might be used in the sense of shrewdness. He was discerning, not in a good way, but in a negative way. He was just really shrewd. Look at verse 3. Then the steward, manager, said within himself. Notice it said within himself. So he didn't let his uh, thoughts be known to anybody. He said within himself, What shall I do? <laughs> Have you ever had a conversation with yourself? Well, this guy did. For my lord, the, the owner of the property, takes away from me the stewardship, my, manage, uh, uh, my manager position. I cannot dig. To beg, I am ashamed. Oh, my goodness, this guy, it was a big shock because he had been living a pretty cushy lifestyle, and, uh, but now it was drying up. And if that wasn't bad enough, future opportunities didn't look so good because he had just been fired for being irresponsible. If the word got around, especially in those smaller villages, I mean, he was toast. His standard of living was going down to zero, beyond zero. And he had loved those perks that his lifestyle had uh, offered him. And then, in addition to that, he was in a serious dilemma because he says he could not dig. <laughs> I cannot dig. Um, yeah, you, you probably should put in there, I will not dig. I mean, that's work. That's manual labor. And uh, I'm more of an office kind of a guy. I'm a white-collar worker. I don't do manual labor. But, uh, and in his eyes, it's not true, but in his eyes, it was beneath him. I mean, you know, I don't dig ditches, uh, even though it was uh, uh, readily available work. And then it says, I am ashamed to beg. Isn't that something? He's ashamed to beg. Funny, isn't it? He wasn't ashamed to steal. <laughs> he wasn't ashamed to waste uh, his manager's money, but uh, funny how we, uh, our own moral um, compass gets all screwed up, but... Uh, the fact is, this man had two serious problems. He was lazy and he was proud. And boy, I'd say, well, thats those are, those are serious issues in any life. And then, of all things, he has an epiphany. I mean, as though, the, the, as though a light shine all around Verse 4, Ah, oh, I am resolved. I got it. It I just dawned on him. I know what I'll do. When I am put out of my stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he decides, interesting, that word resolved is a Greek word gnosis. And those of you who know anything about that Greek, you know that that word actually means no. So actually he got a feeling. That is, he got a bright idea. And uh, I will tell you, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't God that put that into his mind. Uh, that feeling that he got, that knowledge that he got certainly was from his own flesh or maybe even from the devil. Verse five, so he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him. Now, don't go to the owner. Come to me, and said unto the first, "How much owest thou unto my lord?" Now, debts in those days is uh, not common, actually, and certainly wasn't like typical today, where you go to bank and you, you know, get out a line of credit or maybe have a credit card or something like that. No, uh, debts was not typical. But if they did have it, then they would often pay the debt at harvest. For example, if someone Used olive oil, and then when the harvest came from their olive crop, they would pay it back. Or if they were a tenant farmer, then they would pay it back, or wheat, or so forth. And so one by one, this manager decides to strike a deal and slash the that which they owed. I mean, imagine having a student debt, and somehow the uh, government official calls you up and says, "Hey, guess what? We're cutting that thing in half, or we're cutting a third off of it." I mean, this is some serious. Situation here now. Why was he doing this? Well, really in any society, but especially this primitive Jewish society. Here's the reason why this would work. In that society, when you did something for somebody else, then they were they owed you something. They were obligated. uh, You know, quid pro quo. You know, I mean, uh, you scratch my back, uh, you know, I'll scratch your back. It was really that way. If uh, if you they provided a luncheon, then it was expected that you would provide them a lunch. And that's simply how it was done. And so, I mean, it just always worked that way. Nobody was just a recipient without giving something. And so this guy knew the way the culture worked. And he said, look, if I cut you a deal, then I I know I could expect something from you at a future date. Verse number six. And so he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, take thy bill, sit down quickly and write 50. I mean, he gives this guy a 50% write-off. Now, what is a measure of oil? A measure is 8.575 gallons, so 100 measures is 100, uh, 875 gallons, almost 1,000 gallons of olive oil. You can actually go through quite a bit of olive oil. They used it for everything. But that would actually equal about 1,000 denarii, which is actually three years of wages. I'm talking about a substantial Write off here, and uh, he tells the guy to write it in his own handwriting. He would sign it off, and uh, and do so quickly. <laughs> Typical of a con man, do so quickly. You know, it's like you know, you go to buy something. Well, it's, you know, if you don't buy it today, it's gonna be gone. You know, in the next 15 minutes, you can do this. And anyway, verse number seven. And said he to another, "How much was thou?" And he said, "A hundred measures of wheat." And he said unto him, "Take thy bill." and write four score. So he uh, said, I want you to take this and a hundred. Oh, okay. Now I want you to write 80. Gives him a 20% discount, for whatever reason. Now we're talking here about a a thousand bushels of wheat, which would take about a hundred acres to produce. If you take one man, that would take about eight or 10 years of hard labor to be able to have that amount of money. Wheat was a very Precious commodity and not as readily available as olive oil. So this is a pretty big, uh, uh, big issue here. Maybe that's why you only wrote off 20%. But the fact is, imagine owing 10 years worth of income, and someone just wrote off two years of that. I mean, we're talking about my life here. You know, this is a pretty big deal. Now, these kind of discounts uh, seemed like they're just you know out and out fraud, but actually, we're done at different times. Maybe the weather was bad, and so they didn't produce as much, and so therefore, uh, they were able to write off a dead a little bit. Sometimes uh, there was some kind of crop failure, like a locust would come in, and then sometimes maybe there would be enemies, and uh, so that created a, a situation there. And so it wasn't uncommon, really, sometimes to strike a deal. But whatever the fact was, effectively, this man was taking In our economy, hundreds of thousands of dollars away from his owner, which was owed him. Now he didn't personally get that money, but he was padding his future by doing all of this. Now, um, so Jesus tells the story. Everybody's listening to him. They're sitting there. They're shaking their head, thinking, "Man, what a, what a con man! What a creep! What a, what a irresponsible!" You know what a loser to do that to the guy that you uh, has given you this job. I mean, they were just, um, you know, they were they were in all their minds they were saying, "Man, what a bad dude." And then Jesus pauses. I'm sure he had a long, dramatic pause. He's sitting there looking them all in the eye. He's told the story. They're thinking now, I want to know what Jesus says about this bad guy. And then Jesus said, verse eight, and the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. What? What? Man, that's a head scratcher. Why in the world would the owner commend this low-life manager for embezzling, basically, and just taking his money? Really, he had been a thief. Well, the the owner said, you have proved yourself to be shrewd. Basically, what he was saying was this, you were very concerned about your future, more concerned about your future than a children of light. Beautiful wording here, children of the world and children of light. You know, there's only two kinds of people in the world. You're either a child of the world or a child of light. And isn't that a beautiful description of those people who are born again by the blood of Jesus Christ? Children of light. They know things. Jesus was saying, for people who are in the light, you're pretty in the dark. Because you're living for today. You're living like there's no tomorrow. And here are these people who are children of the world who have no good tomorrow. And yet they're living for tomorrow at least in their mind, very concerned about their future, and you are not concerned about your future. You are not even thinking about what you're doing today is going to affect your future. And Jesus said, that's some very unwise thinking. That's why these worldlings or offspring of the world worldlings That's a very good word. I like that word. These worldlings who have only an earthly future, have no heavenly future. And it's amazing the amount of effort and uh, manpower and, and energy that goes into the things of this world, especially money things. I mean, people and their money, people and their jobs, they just about do anything to get the, the, done what they want. And yet it's all temporary. And that's this whole story. Jesus said... Why would a, we need to learn from these worldlings. Now, we shouldn't learn from their belief in God. That's a terrible thing. But we can learn from their actions. Their actions show that they care about the future, even though they don't understand the future. And even though their future is only a few years out, for you, your future is eternal. And you need to realize your life has been given to you your money has been given to you as a way to secure your future. So he gives the explanation. Now he gives the application of this story. And Jesus points us to three key lessons. And as I was going through that, I realized that he was telling us that we are to use our money for Jesus. We are to use our money for others. And we are to use our money for ourselves. But the uh, order of scripture didn't fit my acrostics, so... I'm going to change a little bit, and I'm going to start with verse 13. I really should go to verse 9 now, but I'm going to go to verse 13 because uh, we are going to use our money, first of all, for Jesus because it spells joy. If we want to joyfully use our money for Christ, here is how it's done. Verse 13, no man can serve two masters And contrary to what some men say, that's not a verse forbidding polygamy. But anyway, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. There are many Bible scholars who say that the, the one word in this verse that has the most emphasis in the original language is the word and in that last sentence. He cannot serve God and mammon. Again, uses that word mammon, which uh, for all intents and purposes can basically mean money and possessions, but it's actually more specific than that. We've talked about it in the past. It is actually the, it's the word for the pagan god of money. And so Jesus assigns, even in the story, he said, money uh, really has a spirit attached to it. And if you're not careful, you're going to be worshiping at the foot of this pagan god, Mammon, or you're going to worship God. By the way, this verse is an exact duplicate. There's two or three times in the Gospels it's quoted. You may remember Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. But basically he says, no, no slave can serve two masters. It can't be done. I mean, it's impossible. You can't serve two masters at the same time. Now, some people say... um, You know what? I'm serving God. Other people say, I'm not serving God. I'm just living for what I'm doing. Others say, I'm serving God and I'm making sure that I have a good financial future. But you know, God says that that can't be done. You can either serve the devil or you can serve God, but you can't serve God and the devil. And he's going to show you what that means here in just a moment. He says, you've got to make your choice. I mean, it's impossible. If, one, if a guy works for Mr. Jones, he can't work for Mr. Smith because a slave's life is all-encompassing. The master takes all of your time. He takes all of your energy. He takes all of your resources. He takes all of your possessions. A person who is a bond slave can only serve one master. It's impossible. And that's what Jesus is pointing out. You're going to serve somebody You're going to either serve yourself and your flesh and the devil and uh, serve your love of money, or you're going to serve God, one or the other. You cannot simply do both. And so he said, if you're going to love God, you uh, can't love your money. And by the way, let me just point out God is not saying God and money are opposite, he's saying loving God and loving money. That's the difference. In fact, people often misquote that verse You know where the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. People quote it. You know know money is the root of all evil. No, it's the love of money. And so that's what this is talking about. It's talking about loving God as opposed to loving money. Now, you either got to do one or the other. I'm all in for God or I'm all in for money. What we can't say is I'm all in for both. You can't do that. You have to say I'm all in for God or all in for money. Make a choice, God said, because you can't do both. Because loving God, you look at the unseen, the eternal. Loving money, you look at things that are seen and temporal. Loving God means trust. Loving money means worry. Loving God means my happiness is the creator. Loving money means my happiness is in the creature. Possession of wealth is a gift from God, and it is given to us as a stewardship. Well, I choose to honor Jesus Christ, and that's what this is saying. The first goal of having a joy in my money, and for some people, money's not really very joyful to them. It's kind of stressful. But the way to have a joyful viewpoint on money is to put Jesus first. I'm going to serve Jesus with my money. I'm going to serve His church, His kingdom, His bride. Do you realize that our money is given to us really as a test? Yes, it's there for our provisions so that we can eat. Yes, it's given there so that you know we can have a car to drive or a roof over our head. Uh, yeah, yes, it's given to us for those basic necessities of life. But the fact is, it is really given to us as a test. Now, Jesus tells this story, he then reminds them that you're going to have to choose, gentlemen. You're going to have to choose uh, loving God or loving money. You're going to have to make your choice. Apparently, even though he was addressing the disciples, some Pharisees were eavesdropping. They must have been on the outskirts or something because look at verse 14. And the Pharisees also who were covetous heard these things. I mean, it may, uh, they may have been in the back row, but they were listening and they derided him. Now, money lovers don't like this parable. They did not like this parable. Now, what they should have done was, thank you, Pastor Jesus, for telling us this sermon about money. Thank you, Pastor Jesus, for reminding us to love God rather than love money. But some people get mad when the pastor talks about money. And some people get ticked off when they start talking about tithing. And some people get upset when they, we start talking about putting God first. That's what they should have done. They should have said, Jesus, thank you for the good reminder that we need to either love God or love money. But you can't do both. And so putting Jesus first in my finances. That's the main thing. I want to use it for his kingdom. I want to use it for his glory. That's the first purpose of my money. People say, what's the purpose of your money? You got to eat. No, the first purpose is to glorify Jesus. What's the first purpose? To glorify Jesus. And so the joy of Christ-centered finances, number one, use your money for Jesus. Number two, use your money for others. We're spelling joy here, J-O-Y. Now let's go back to verse 9. We can get back on track now for those of you that were bothered by my jumping around. All right. If you teacher types. I know you're irritated with me, but uh, it fit my outline. All right. Verse 9. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. What? What? Okay. We'll come back to that. That when ye fail, either you die or your money fails... They may receive you into everlasting habitations. God said, I want you to make to yourselves friends, friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. Now, some people use their money to make friends. They want to make sure that the one crowd really likes them. You know, they like their, whatever crowd they're in. And, uh, you know, they like to make sure they got the right. Shoes or clothes or car or house or their kids go to the right college or whatever it is that makes them feel good about themselves. And uh, recently we had these uh, mega stars that tried to buy their children's way into certain colleges because they wanted everybody to feel good that they're really sharp people and their kids go to the best. And we like to buy things, we like to buy friends, we like to buy status. But God says, rather than trying to buy friends of this earth, you ought to try to buy friends of uh, in the future, those that are everlasting habitation. Literally, what he's saying is you ought to put your money to work so that when you walk into heaven, there are friends that are there to welcome you who have been taken there as a direct result of your money. Your money has been given to you to put friends ahead, put the gospel so that you can touch lives. Friends, there are only two eternal things that we deal with every day. It is the souls of men and the word of God. Those are both eternal. Therefore, we ought to put our time, our resources, our talent, our treasures into those two things, something that will affect souls and something that will affect the word of God. And that's what he's saying here, is that when you come to heaven, you have a welcome committee. Now, the word unrighteous there just means um, possessions that are of this world. It's not meaning they're especially sinful. Money's not especially sinful. As some have said, it's not immoral or amoral. It's just, uh, it's just there. And how we use it is what makes the difference. But it says, when you fail, that means when we die, when we pass away. And we will. we all fail. And on that final day. When we fail, our money fails. And then we'll find out if we purchase day friends. We will find out if our lifestyle, our giving, our efforts, our energies, if there's anybody there that we have uh, made a difference. That's why it's important to give while you live. Or as someone said, "Do your living," or "Do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. Give it to the gospel. Give it to Bible preaching church ministries that you know and trust. And, you know, this endless accumulation of money and possessions is just plain wasteful, friends. And it robs others of something that could be done for them. And it even robs ourselves, as we'll see in a few moments. But the Bible says in Luke chapter 6 and verse 38, it says, Give. And then he will give, pressed down, shaken together, running over. And so what he's saying here is that not only here, but in the future. So these running over blessings, we may not have the house we would have liked to have here on earth, may have not had the place to put my kids in that I would have loved, may not have had the car or the job or whatever clothes or whatever, you know, kind of makes us really feel good. I may have not ever had that in this life, but I'll tell you one thing. Thank God, when I get to heaven, I have running over blessings. I have touched others with my money. Joy-filled finances means I, put, I use my money for Jesus. It means I use my money for others, and that's really what it comes down to. I read uh, recently a quote from the Wall Street Journal. Now, the Wall Street Journal probably not a, a great place to get your advice for life, <laughs> But this one actually, I think, uh, is pretty good. Listen to this. They said, money is an article. Smart. It's a vehicle. It's, a, it's an instrument. Money is an article. This is from the Wall Street Journal. A decidedly secular, pretty much liberal um, a publication. A few years ago, they wrote this. Money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to anywhere except heaven. And as a universal provider of everything except happiness. (laughs) That's pretty good. You can use your money to go anywhere if you have enough of it, but you can't go to heaven with your money. And you can buy anything you want, but you can't buy happiness. All the joy of Christ-centered finances. Jesus said, I want you to use your money for Jesus Christ. Use it for the gospel." You can't love money and love God. They're mutually exclusive because when you, they're an, they're an absolute master. They they allow no others. So you you can't have two masters. You're a bond slave to either money or you're a bond slave to Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean you can't have money and be a good Christian. In fact, you can be quite wealthy. Many great. Wonderful Christians in the Bible and even in our world today. Wonderful Christians that have lots of money, but they're not serving their money. We're serving Jesus Christ and we're just using whatever God gives us for a good work. We're using the money for Jesus and we're using it for others. I want to make a difference in the lives of others. That's what I'm here for. That's what my life is there for. Every morning, Pauline and I pray, uh, especially on Sundays, we hold hands and we pray, Oh God. Help us to be a blessing to other people. Part of that blessing is what we give. And as a pastor, I still tithe and give above the tithe. You'd say, you mean you don't just, you have to give, don't you work for the church? I know, but I'm still a man. I, I still get an income and I tithe just like everybody else. Joy. Use your money for Jesus. Use it for others. And then finally, use your money for yourself. You'd say, yeah, now, this is the part of sermon I'm going to listen to. Boy, good, okay, fine, give it to Jesus, give, give it for others. But for myself, yeah, I'm talking about, them. that's good, okay. How do we use our money for ourselves? Okay, well, sit, uh, sit a little loose here because uh, you're going you're gonna to be shaking off your chair here. Verse 10, he that is faithful in that which is least, what, money is the least, yeah, Okay, he said, those are blessings, but they're small. is faithful in that which is much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in the most. Now, what's the point of Jesus? Basically, your circumstances do not determine your character. It is your faithfulness, it is your godliness that determines your character. People say, well, I'll tell you one thing, Pastor. If I had more, I'd give more. The problem with that is, it's, it's just totally wrong <laughs> because God's not as interested in the dollar amount as the percentage. He's interested in what you have left over, and that's the key. I mean, when Jesus commended the people that were giving, he commended this widow. She didn't actually give a lot, quantitatively, but she gave percentage. What She gave all she had. What Jesus is saying here is, and this is a very strong language, and that is, now, you may not think of yourself as wealthy, but whatever you do have, you need to make sure you use it for God faithfully. And I will say something about wealth. You know, if you have even a few dollars in your pocket, if you were able to drive to church in any kind of a car today, if you have indoor plumbing, if you have any kind of a roof overhead, do you realize that you are more wealthy than 80% of the world right now? The fact is, we are very rich people. And for any of us here in America, to uh, say, I'm not rich or I don't have very much. I mean, for the most part, that's just a a sad commentary on the way we think about things. And what God is saying here is is that if you will learn to be faithful in small things, then God will bless you with bigger things. Now, I've been around this uh, horn for about 40 plus years, serving the Lord Bible college, serving in a couple of churches, and uh, preached all over. I've talked to thousands of people, and uh, if I could, uh, if I could summarize all the things about money here, uh, the most w- way to be faithful in that which is least, you'd say, "Well, how can I get a handle on my money? How can I? Wh- what's the most important things?" Well, you could get my uh, book on financial wisdom. I brought this up here. And this is not an advertisement for this, but I will say that uh, in Scripture there are nine key principles. and uh, you can this is more of a principle driven book. You can get to Dave Ramsey's book and it's a great book for practical finances, a, a, tonny, a total money makeover, or I forget what it's called. That's a great book. great. I uh, recommend it for the very practical thing, very practical. But um, if you, uh, you want to find out, how to be uh, faithful in your money, then I will tell you there's two key things, and I hope you'll write these down. Number one, tithe. You've heard it, but I say it again. The word tithe means tenth now. It doesn't mean give whatever you have in your pocket. It means to give one-tenth of all your uh, increase, your gross income or your gross profit, now, there are many, 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 many scriptures that teach that. In fact, I'm actually writing a book All that. It'll hopefully, it'll be out in a few months, the Lord willing. But uh, for at least 4,000 years, and really there's evidence that it goes back to the Garden of Eden, but for at least 4,000 years, since Genesis 15 and Abraham, God's people have been tithing. Way before even God wrote it down in the, the law for the Jewish uh, people, tithing has been part of uh, what people would do. In the beginning, they would bring it to an altar. Then they brought it to the tabernacle. Then they'd bring their tithe to the temple. Then they brought their tithe to the synagogue. And then in the New Testament, they brought thy tithe to the church. Now, to not tithe is to bite the hands that feed you. People say, well, I'm going to, yeah, I got to do this. and that. Folks, to not tithe is like a dog biting the hand that feeds him. I mean, God feeds us, and to not tithe is saying, God, you don't feed me. Now you'd say, well, how do I? What is ten percent? Well, first of all, there's lots of little tools. You can get little calculators. You can get your little um, phone there, but or you can just uh, move that decimal over. Isn't it two to the left? Isn't that how you do that? And uh, if you have a hundred dollars, you just move that uh, decimal over. Is it one anyway? One. And uh, one over there, so you got 10, $10 out of 100, that's the way it works. And so, but to, to, the best way to do it is make sure that you tithe. And I I can tell you this, I think the best way to tithe is to use that electronic giving. We have it uh, all dialed in for you. I mean, it's so quick, it's so easy, it's so secure, it's so regular, you can actually make a recurring gift. I'm just telling you, from a practical standpoint, and if you don't even, I'm not trying to get your money. I'm just telling you, this is absolutely the best way to go. Make sure you tithe. If you're here, you haven't learned tithe yet, folks. Just do this. Jump into this. Don't wait because this is an obedience issue. Make sure you give one tenth of your gross profit, your gross income to the Lord. Just that's it. We just do that. You you will not ever, 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 ever be successful financially, no matter what you buy or what you don't buy. I cannot imagine waking up in the morning knowing I robbed God. I mean, honestly, I couldn't go to bed at night if I knew I had robbed God. I'd 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 sleep with a gun under my pillow. I would I would just be afraid what was going to happen because I I want to make sure that God doesn't have anything against me. And uh, I just, folks, I promise you, there's two very important things. Number one, make sure you tie. Number two and this is very practical, and that is this, no debt. I just have no debt. No debt at all. Now, I didn't say no contracts. I didn't say no commitments. I didn't say no obligations. I said no debt. and There's a big difference between an obligation and a debt or a commitment or a contract and a debt. You'd say, well, what is a debt? Get my book on <laughs> Is advertising again, but honestly, I do. I mean, I, I don't have time in this message to talk about it, but I'll give you a very quick and concise. A debt is any obligation that is not 100% secured or collateralized. That's it. If it's not 100% secured, it's a debt. So you say, well, let me get this right. So I went down and bought uh, a new couch uh, on the time, you know, on my credit card. Is that a debt or an obligation? It's both. <laughs> it's, it is an obligation, but it's a debt. It's, it's, not, a, it's not secured. There's nothing that secured that. Because the minute you bought that couch, they don't want it back. And that $1,000 couch is now worth $500 at best. It's not secured. So that's a debt. You'd say, what's so wrong with debt? Debt, the number one thing about debt is it tempts God it presumes upon the good nature of God. You're saying, God, you're going to pay for what I got myself into. I know you're going to do that. That's like jumping in front of a car, moving car saying, I know he'll stop the car. Folks, that's presuming upon the good nature of God. We don't want to presume. Now, there are many scriptures that teach this. Uh, Romans chapter 13 says, oh, no man anything. There's five Greek negatives in that one verse. And that just emphasizes what God is saying, folks. No unsecured debt. Now, fortunately, in the state of California, for mortgages, all mortgages now, at least if you they are owner occupied uh, and uh, primary residents, all mortgages now are non-recourse, and so therefore that means any mortgages are 100% secured. So they they have to all lenders have to take that property as 100% coverage for whatever debt there was. That's the new. That's the law in California. It's been that law for a few years now, and that's a great boon for California owners. There's about half of the United States where all mortgage debt is uh, non-recourse. Now, it has to be your primary residence, and it has to be. Um, uh, where you, have has to be owner-occupied, so it can't be some spec house you're buying. But if you're doing that, then it's 100% secured. Now, if you can secure something 100% some other way, and there are little uh, different financial tools that do that, but that's the key. And so um, you'd say, well, what about credit cards? Can I use those? Absolutely, as long as it's not a debt card. Is it a credit card or a debt card? I mean, are you using that credit card as a charge card to just get points? You have the money. You're just using it for some reason, travel reasons or whatever. Then it's a charge card. It's not a debt card. But is it a debt card? If it's a debt card, cut it up. A lot of people need to have some plastic surgery, amen? I mean, get that credit card, just chop that baby up and do some surgery. And uh, Now, you say, well, oh, I, had, I had emergency debt. Obviously, if your ox falls in a ditch, you got to pull that ditch out. If your wife went to the hospital and she has complications, and uh, you know, you can't say, Well, just I don't have the money, let her die, doc. And uh, that's not the way it works, you know. I mean, obviously, you know, there's going to be maybe emergency debt, but emergency debt doesn't mean I had to put my latte on my credit card, that's not an emergency. Now I'll guarantee sometimes I've needed coffee that bad, but uh, that's not uh, that's not it. So if you boiled down the nine principles that I have here, you boiled down that practical book of Dave Ramsey. You took this little book here. I just gave you the whole thing in two little points. Number one, just always tithe. Just never never steal from God ever. And number two, just never go into debt. One person put it this way. They said. Even if you make $100 a week, just spend $99.95. Just don't ever spend, spend at least a nickel less than you've got. Never spend a nickel more. Basically, it's as simple as that. Just never spend a nickel more than you have. That's it. Never presume upon the good nature of God. That's tempting God. Jesus said to the devil, He said, Tempt not the Lord thy God. Don't tempt God. And when we go out on a debt card of any type. And uh, so I, I just tell you, the best thing I can do for myself is to not be in debt. Now, there's another way to look at it. Look at verse 11. If, therefore, ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to yourselves true riches? God said the best thing you can do for yourself, for your own spiritual life, the best thing you can do to acquire true riches is to be faithful with your money. Amen. Someone said it this way, stewardship is that area of life where men make money and God makes men. I'll say that again. That's a good one to write down. Stewardship is that area of the Christian life where men make money and God makes men. Some wives, you know, are worried for their husband's sake and so they take the responsibility and certainly nothing wrong with being a part of that and and uh, maybe even a large part. But I will say this, money is one of the best sanctifying tools God has. He has a, God has a, uses money in a great way to make men into godly Christians. And Notice what this says. If you can't be faithful with mammon, who will commit to your trust true riches? Now, there are true riches as opposed to earthly riches. Now, there's nothing wrong with earthly riches, nothing wrong with a car. I mean, my wife... And I have a car, she drives mostly, but it's a beautiful car. It's a nice uh, Honda car and great air conditioning and great gas mileage. I will tell you this uh, when it comes to soul winning, I'm a lot better soul winner in her car than my car. In my 58 Volkswagen, you'd say, Well, are you, uh, you're not uh, happy with your car. I'm happy with my car. But when it comes to the gospel, I love that car a whole lot better. And so I like a better car, a more expensive car for the gospel. So therefore, it's nothing wrong with that car. That's a good thing to have. Now, I don't think I have to have a Bentley to go out soul winning, but uh, if you want to buy me one, folks, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll suffer and I'll do that for Jesus' sake, I'll tell you right now, but, uh, but uh, actually, it's a little uh, Porsche I want. But uh, um, but the, the point being here that there are earthly riches, there's something like wrong with those, but it's not true riches. It's not like Bible knowledge. It's not like hope in my soul. It's not like peace, waking up and going to bed with peace. It's not like contentment. It's not like children and grandchildren and answers to prayer. Those are true riches. And God said, if you want true riches, then you need to learn how to be faithful. How do you be faithful? Always tithe, never go into debt. Always tithe, never go into debt. Always tithe, never go into debt. Start today. You'd say, well, how can I do that? Well, as I mentioned, there's a great practical book there with Dave Ramsey. Get it. Now, finally, Jesus drops the hammer on (laughs) them. He loves to do that. Verse 12, he drops the hammer. And if you have... Now, this this is... You talk about straightforward, um, brazen talking. No beating around the bush. He looks those disciples in the eyes and he said, Gentlemen, if you have not been faithful... And that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? Now, it starts off talking about money, starts off talking about who's going to be your master. And now he goes to the basic question of integrity. What kind of a person would take another man's money and just throw it away? Nothing but a thief. Nothing but an embezzling, conniving thief. I mean, Jesus is talking straight. He doesn't beat around the bush. He's saying if you had any integrity at all, you would realize that the money you have is not yours. It's God's. None of it's yours. And you've been placed in your hand as a steward. You're a manager. That's the whole point of this story. You have been a manager. What are you doing with it? That means that all of my possessions are actually God's. Everything are God's. This is My car is God's. Everything is God's. Sometimes I get phone calls. I don't answer them very often anymore. I mean, unbelievable. You just can't even answer the phone. You have to screen everything anymore. But every once in a while, you answer one of those things. Inevitably, someone will say, you know, this or that. One day, a couple months ago, someone said, hello, Mr. Pollock. Do you own your own home? Now, some people own their own home. Some people don't own their own home. He, he just wanted to make sure he was talking to the, you know, the homeowner. Most people don't own their own home, even if they own their own home. Really, the bank owns it, right? So, First of all, if you have a mortgage, don't say you own your home. Say the bank owns it, and I'm paying the bank, and one of these days, I'll own it. Amen. Nothing wrong with saying that, but really, you, we don't own it. So, uh, But honestly... I got to thinking, you know, really, even if I don't have a mortgage and I actually own the home outright, my name's on the deed and so forth, I still don't own it. Someone said, called me a phone, are you a homeowner? No, thank you. <laughs> you don't own your home? Well, yeah, my name is on the deed. You own it? No, I don't own it. Thank you. What do you mean you don't own it? Your name's on the deed. I saw it on the, on the assessor's, San Joaquin County Assessor's Roll. I know, but I don't own it. Is your name Tim Pollack? My name is Tim Pollock, and I don't own it, but your name is Tim Pollock. Yep, that's my name. You own it? Don't own it. Who owns your house then? God owns my house, and God owns my car, and God owns my golf clubs, and God owns everything. He owns it all. Haggai 2 in verse 8 says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Everything is God's. Doctor Howard Hendricks, great Bible teacher. I love what a great scholar. He was talking to a man who was just um, uber rich. I mean, extremely rich. Not just wealthy. And this guy was worth millions, and also a wonderful Christian. But he had grown up in that, so he actually had grew up in affluence, and yet was a wonderful faithful Christian. Dr. Hendricks looked at that man and said, how in the world have you been able to maintain such a strong testimony having all that money? I mean, that's was very rare for people to have all that money and really just to be such a good, good man. And here's what that man told Dr. Hendricks. Dr. Hendricks wrote it down. I love what he said. He said, my father taught us growing up that everything in our home was either a tool an idol. You make your choice. Either you use it as a tool or you make it an idol. Everything I have is either a tool for the gospel, for others, even for my own spiritual walk, or it's an idol. I close with the wonderful reminder of the song, Thank You. You remember it was very popular a few years ago in the Christian circles, and it tells of a person who comes to heaven. And as they approach heaven, someone comes up and says, thank you. And the person says, what? Thank you for what? Thank you for giving. Thank you for teaching that Sunday school class because I was one of those children that you prayed for. Another comes up and says, thank you. I was, a, I was one of those people that the missionary reached. Thank you for giving. Folks, our lives are to be managers, faithful managers of what God's given us. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.